0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Matt Karakomi, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Matt also just gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which says... For years, I've turned to Geek's Guide for open-ended discussions on my favorite content. Dave's warm yet analytical tone is well-suited to the variety of formats the show offers. The lovable cast of returning panelists punctuate the interview roster with just the kind of quirky party that I enjoy with my own friends. I recently became a supporter after realizing that Patreon's per-episode floating contribution offers a simple mechanism for encouraging more Geek's Guide. So big thanks again to Matt Karakomi for that great review and for supporting us on Patreon. Alright, so now let's get to our
1: show. Wired.com presents
2: The Geek's Guide
1: to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode 516 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr-Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today on the show we'll be discussing Robert Heinlein's classic 1966 novel The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, about a lunar colony declaring independence from Earth. And this will include spoilers for everything in the book, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 29th appearance on the show. He's a writer and a longtime tech journalist living in Harlem. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by the small press Youth in Decline in 2014. And his fiction has also appeared in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Rislet. He's the co-host of the podcast Original Content and the comics interview series Panel to Panel. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really excited to be back. The next up, we've got Lisa Yazick, making her 10th appearance on the show. She's Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies at Georgia Tech and author of the nonfiction books Galactic Suburbia, Sisters of Tomorrow, and The Future is Female. She also appeared in the AMC miniseries James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. So, Lisa, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks. It's great to be here again.
0: And also joining us today is Robbie Suave, who you may remember from our future interview back in Episode 488. He's a senior editor at Reason and author of the books Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump, and Tech Panic Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future. Forbes named him to their 30 under 30 list in the category of Law and Policy, and The Spectator calls him a sought after player in the Beltway's Dungeons and Dragons circles. So, Robbie, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: Okay, so let's start off with Anthony and have you tell us about your history reading Robert Heinlein.
1: Yeah, I I think I read Heinlein fairly young, um partly just because there was this period where I was reading a lot of golden age science fiction. Um but I think I also viewed him with a little bit of suspicion because my gateway drug was was Asimov, and I think Asimov always had this kind of competitiveness with him and he was kind of always described as the junior of the sort of big two Campbell, you know, astounding science fiction writers. And I always had a preference for Asimov, and so which is sort of a petty reason to, <laughs> to, to view Heinlein kind of suspiciously. But that was, I think, the chip I had on my shoulder going into it. And you know, also that I think my you know politics are pretty different, you know, more considerably more left wing than, than Heinlein's. But um, at the same time, I mean, I find him just to be an incredibly compelling writer, particularly the early science fiction. Um, I think that. You know the the future history stories that he wrote for Astounding in the '40s are terrific. Um, I think Double Star is like a really fun novel. And then around uh, Starship Troopers, uh, which I, to be honest I didn't read until recently and and find to be almost unreadable. You know the the politics kind of come to the forefront, um, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But uh, I think then his books just become much more these collections of lectures rather than novels. And, and so I'm not as fond of, of the, the work um, from Starship Troopers onward, with the very notable exception of the book we're discussing today, Moon is a Harsh Mistress.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I'm uh, Red Planet by Heinlein was the first book my parents read to me. So I was really young, you know, like three or something like that. And uh, so that's the first book I remember them reading to me. And they were both – they're both scientists and both big science fiction fans. And so they were big fans of Heinlein's juveniles, you know, what today we would call young adult science fiction novels. And so uh, I read a ton of those growing up. And so I I I have a little list here. And so the ones that I really liked were Red Planet, Puppet Masters, Tunnel in the Sky, Time for the Stars, Have Spacesuit Will Travel, Starship Troopers, and Orphans of the Sky – and then I know I also read Rocketship Galileo, Space Cadet, The Rolling Stones, Starman Jones, and Citizen of the Galaxy, but wow. I but I don't those those last ones I don't I either thought they were just okay or don't really remember them or I'm not sure I finished them and so on. Um, but my parents always said that later Heinlein was not good. In my mo- my mom's quote was he turned into a quote dirty old man. Uh, so I never read any of any of the later stuff. Um, and I actually, I tried to read Moon is a Harsh Mistress when I was a kid and was kind of turned off by the, um, the sort of, uh, strange syntax or, you know, non-conventional syntax. And I think I just read like 10 pages and I was just like, nah, I'm not into this. Um, but then, uh, on some episode we were, ha- we were having a conversation about AI and science fiction. And one of our listeners said, how, how come you didn't mention Mike from Moon is a Harsh Mistress? And I had to confess I'd never read it. And so, you know, a big impetus for a lot of these book clubs is uh, books that I'm embarrassed to admit I never read. So so that was a big reason for that this is coming up now. Um, but how about Lisa? What's your history with Robert Heinlein?
3: So um, my history with Heinlein, I, I I came to him later, actually. You know, my gateway drugs were Joanna Russ and Sam Delaney. Um, so you you can imagine when I got to Heinlein, it was – not quite the same set of stories. I think the first time I encountered him was maybe in my teens or maybe early 20s. Uh, and the first time I read this particular book, I like started it and I thought, oh, cool, there's going to be this woman who's going to lead a revolution. These guys are going to hook up. <laughs> Ouch. And then I was like, oh, nope, that's not at all what's going to happen here. And I don't think I even finished it. And then the second time I read it was when I was in graduate school and I was writing what would become my first book on the history of a uh, representing cybernetics in science fiction. And so I was doing uh, work on artificial intelligence. And that time I was so into Mike and I'm still into Mike. You know, Mike is awesome. What a great person. And I use the word advisedly because not all things are people and not all humans are people, right? Um, I think they say that in Dune. Anyways, Mike seems like good people. And I think Heinlein does him a bit dirty at the end of the novel. Uh, and I still feel that way now. And then, but this time reading it through, Uh, I kind of was interested in thinking about the line marriage concept. I don't know why I got like really kind of bugged out thinking about that. That was neat. And I want to give Heinlein some points for like trying to think past galactic suburbia and not just repeating like middle class America in outer space, even though I don't think he gets too far into that project. He tries. Uh, But ultimately, you know, I'm with Samuel Delaney, right, who once famously said, who's the greatest author science fiction author of the 20th century? Robert Heinlein, alas. <laughs> and that, that's where I end up on it. <sighs> because you know what? I do not want to be a woman in that revolution sitting around serving the coffee and being a quiet, good femme. <laughs>
0: <Thanks>. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll get to that. But I want to get, mm-hmm. get Robbie in here, too. So, Robbie, what's your history with Robert Heinlein?
3: Sure.
2: So you know how you can kind of, uh, I don't know if other people do this. I I think they do. You you try to, you have like one clear memory in your mind and then you go, okay, did this thing, did this other thing happen after that or before that? So I like, I'll always Mm. remember that I was reading all of the Dune books. In eighth grade, because I got bullied, uh, because the the third the third dude, uh, Dune book or the fourth one, God Emperor of Dune, has that very phallic picture of um, <laughs> of Lido Sandworm Lido on the cover, and it was I was like made fun of for it. So so I must have read I must have attempted to read uh, Moon is a harsh mistress. After that, probably in early high school, but it, it definitely not, bef- it, it was before I was a libertarian, so I am a libertarian, <laughs> um, the, the themes of the book really resonate with me, but they didn't, I don't have any recollection of them uh, resonating with me when I read it or attempted to read it, so it, and I, I formed kind of my political views in like, you know, the end of high school, beginning of college, or, you know, the permanent political views that one carries forward into life. So it must have been before that. And I also remember attempting to read Stranger in a Strange Land for a very specific reason, uh, because I'm a major uh fan of the television show Lost, uh, which was also which was airing at the time I was in uh high school and and then uh, college. And the the like widely agree like everyone ag- agrees, even you know, people who have different opinions on how the show ended, everyone agrees that the worst episode of Lost uh, is this third season episode that is actually titled Stranger in a Strange Land? So after, after <laughs> that episode, I remember wanting to read this, bu- this book and, and see, you know, try to, <laughs> is the book as bad as the, as the, as the episode that like carries its name? Um, and I, I did not quite like it and, and didn't get very far through it. And then I've read, uh, and then actually same thing really with Starship Troopers. So I, I, I would probably say on the whole, uh, Heinlein is not one of my favorite um, sci-fi writers, but I loved digging into Moon is a Harsh Mistress now and uh, really, really, really enjoyed it.
0: Okay, cool. I guess I should say the other big reason, in addition to the AI thing, that I wanted to read this book is because I interviewed Robbie last year, and he just mentions that uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress is sort of this formative work for a lot of libertarians, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. That kind of made me interested to to read it, see what that was about. And actually, as I was doing research for this, I, so I watched this video on YouTube called Was Robert Heinlein a Libertarian? And this is a quote from the video. It says, In the early 1970s, according to a survey undertaken at the time by SIL, the Society for Individual Liberty, one libertarian activist in six had been led to libertarianism by reading the novels and short stories of Robert A. Heinlein. So... That's actually a lot more than I realized. So I'm just curious, Robbie, does that uh, sort of square with your experience or what do you think of that?
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, that's probably not the case today. Um, But, uh, and you know, like there was a period of time where most people, I don't know, most 10 years ago, most people who were coming to the libertarian movement or the libertarian party were coming because of Ron Paul. And then, you know, 20 years or more before that, it was from reading Ayn Rand. Um, but certainly there was, I'm sure there was a period of time, probably all the way along where, where the moon is a harsh mistress was probably a gateway. I mean, the professors, you know, the professors, um, uh, is, is in, in many places just kind of giving like an almost, uh, almost forced kind of libertarian pitch, almost like, like just. It actually, in a similar way that Rand does in in her writings, where it just veers from plot into okay, here is clearly what the author thinks about something, so let me just tell you this. It just got to get my kind of manifesto out there. Um, I now, Highland does it much much more artfully than Ayn Rand, although that is not a high bar to clear whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, actually, another thing in this video is that apparently there's – I I guess Heinlein never actually confirmed this, but there's a lot of speculation that the prof character is based on this real person, Robert Lefebvre, who was apparently a neighbor of the Heinleins in uh, Colorado Springs. And he tried to start up this um, uh, – it was called the Freedom School in in nearby Larkspur. Um, But apparently in in terms of both the stuff the prof says and his physical appearance and so on, he's apparently – Pretty similar to this guy Robert Lefebvre. I, know, I, think, I, ha- I
2: think I've encountered that name uh, before in, uh, in in my you know readings about old school libertarians. Uh-huh.
0: So so that was all pretty interesting. But let me just uh, explain the premise if anyone listening to this has not read this book. So uh, so basically, this is in the future, and the moon was turned into a penal colony, and so. And it's sort of an open penal colony where because because obviously you can't like leave, you can't walk off the moon. So uh, you know, the people on the moon are basically allowed to do whatever they want, but they're they're all it's like Australia, you know, kind of all, all sort of convicts. And um and there's this thing called the authority that sort of forces them to sell their oh, well, I guess they're they're mostly the farmers and they grow grain that's then shipped back to feed the overpopulated earth. And there's this supervisory Authority that sort of forces them to sell the grain, but otherwise they they kind of don't have much in the way of government. And so, uh, so our heroes decide they want to throw off the the yoke of the authority and become declare independence. And so, let's see. So, our main characters are so our, our viewpoint character is Manuel Garcia O'Kelly Davis, and he's sort of a computer engineer. Uh and there's this, this Mike character that we mentioned. He's named after Mycroft Holmes from Sherlock Holmes, you know, the the genius, even greater genius brother of Sherlock Holmes, and he's a the, the computer that runs the sort of runs everything on this colony and he's achieved uh self awareness, although Man Manuel or Manny is the only person who knows that. Uh there's this professor Bernardo de la Paz that we mentioned, who's this uh you know yeah, sort of like advisor wise uh, character. And then there's the the love interest Wyoming, not Davis, uh, who Lisa mentioned. Uh so so Lisa, just kind of initial impressions of those of that cast.
3: I mean it's a great cast for a revolution, right? Um it's a and it's a pretty classic science fiction cast. You've got you got a scientist, you got a professor, and as Robbie mentioned he's like he's like literally like the kind of professor exposition of old pulp science fiction <laughs> he, he stands there, he takes his pipe out, he sort of expounds for a while, everyone nods sagely um and and then uh the the computer is great I mean it's a jsx mach now, but I don't care i like I like Mike I think he's so fun he's such a great personality um it the, when he when he starts throwing the rocks at Earth and has certain realizations, which maybe we'll talk about later or not, but that's just great. He's funny, um, and he's really likable. And like I said, Wyoming not I I, you know, leader of the revolution for like five seconds before the <laughs> book actually begins. Um and then the the gentleman take it over and and do a much more efficient job. Um and you know, it's it's an exciting story. It's got a good cast. I think Heinlein is a great writer. I just parts of it are hard to read. Were hard to read then or hard to read now. But uh, it's an exciting story. So I'll start I'll start with that. I like the cast. I think it's a cool cast of characters.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very easy book to read. I mean, I was never bored. I mean, it moves along. It's always clear right. what's going on. I mean, it's, he's a very appealing writer. I mean, you can see why he sort of took the the pulp magazines by storm when he appeared. And you can see, like, why younger younger authors were so kind of I, – I could see, you know, he, he attracted a lot of – fans and acolytes and, and, and so on. And I, I can totally see that. I can t- totally see why you would be, you know, charmed by, by his, uh, you know, intelligence and, uh, talent and everything. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, it is sort of like, I, I we, we kind of got to get this out of the way the the female characters are not good in this book uh-huh. no. and it's, it's kind of a bummer. This is, you know, we just uh, talked about ring worlds a couple months ago and and that's another book where it's kind of a bummer cuz there's there's a lot to like in the book but you kind of it's hard to recommend it without a big disclaimer um and, and this is kind of the same thing like you know I mean, I would def- rec- definitely recommend people read this book, but but you have to go yeah. in knowing that the the gender stuff is just there's something that makes you cr- cringe in practically every it's, every it, couple it's pages. Just,
3: it's so much of its moment, right? I mean, and I think that that's the part that is disappointing and irking all at once is like he can imagine like this amazing AI. He sort of has this really, I don't know if it's well plotted in the real world, but a sort of dramatically plotted revolution. Um, and so many sort of fun parts and then he sort of falls back into this really sort of these stereotypes and you're like, oh, do we have to do this? Um, my favorite is when one of the women volunteers to do something for the revolution and literally one of the characters, it's probably Manny says, you'd be great at it, honey, we accept. And you're like, oh, please, you know, and it's just, it's hard. It's hard to read it. It's weird. Um, at the same time I do think um as a cultural historian and as a feminist um it really makes you understand exactly what it was that women were were up in arms about maybe in the 1960s right is is that they did want to be part of the revolution not the ones serving the coffee
0: Yeah well it's a little unclear like reading it now it's a little unclear to me how much of it is oh this is just the values of a writer of the of 1966 right. and how much of it is like Oh, this is his imagined version of the future where, uh, you know, cultural, you know, sexual mores are are different.
3: One thing I will say, right, is if you consider this time period, he's writing two years right after the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Act, uh, two years after uh, Congress passes the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, which is the first time that you can't uh, pitch jobs based on race and gender. And he's writing this literally at the moment that the National Organization for Women is being incorporated, and so it, it does seem both of its moment. And yet, for someone who's so engaged with the moment, willfully
0: so. Mm-hmm. Well, because in this, this society, they have uh, it's like most marriages are group marriages. Um, I guess you mentioned Lisa the lion. You said that you said yeah. that was that interested you I think particularly. That's cool
3: yeah I mean I think you know one and this is what 's so confusing right is Heinlein can imagine a bunch of people living on the moon with no other constraints starting to evolve their society in new ways that make sense for the sort of techno scientific and techno social situation they 're in and right because the group marriages and the line marriages make a lot of sense, given the way people have to live on the moon, and that 's kind of neat, and he he spends some time sort of getting you to believe that, and I think that 's some cool world building. But then he can't imagine that what it means to be a man or woman within these marriages might change. And that is disappointing and strange.
0: Yeah. So let me just explain. So, so you have some of, so at least some of the marriages on the moon are these group marriages where you have, I don't know, seven people or something, and they're all like married to each other. And then, you know, they can have somebody new join, uh, you know, like the, the, the older people will die off and then then they'll sort of recruit younger people to join. And so people are kind of cycling through this. And so it'll stay at a stable group of seven or so. Um, And um, let me get Anthony back in here. So Anthony, anything uh, strike you about this uh, this society on the moon?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that there are certainly the line marriages are really interesting. And, you know, I I guess I, I, think a lot about this sort of idea that um you know science fiction is supposed to burn the motherhood statement that it's supposed to be not just sort of nodding towards sort of existing pieties but really like saying like nothing is sacred perhaps you know anything could be different you know 100 200 a thousand years from now and and so in that sense the there are a lot of elements of the line marriage that i find really compelling um I don't necessarily, I don't think that's how I would want to be in a marriage, but maybe that's also just because I'm too, you know, parochial in my early 21st century view of how relationships should be. Um, But, you know, to, I think, points that both you and Lisa were making is that it's, and, you know, maybe this is just true of any science fiction novel, but it feels very apparent here that there's this mix of things where he can be very unconventional and really daring and yet there are also things that feel very um you know very much of their time and that like it's it's disappointing that you know as 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 you were saying that he that within the marriage it feels very traditional um and yeah. that um also that you know he like clearly they can't imagine that oh like this is great if it's, if it's all like a heterosexual couples, but like, what if like the men want to have sex with other men or the women want to have sex with other women? Or like, what if one of the women doesn't want to have sex with one of the husbands in the line marriage? Or, and in fact, I mean, there's a very disparaging comment that I think Manny makes at one point about like the idea, like there's something wrong with, you know, men who want to sleep with other men. That's like misdirected um, energy in some way. I don't remember the exact quote, but so there's, you know, and, and again, I think this is true of, any writer that, you know, that that as daring as they want to be, they are ultimately a product of their time, but it it feels just very apparent here because I think so much of the book is built around this structure of someone says sort of the conventional thing, and then they get lectured on why the, the lunar version is better. And so when it feels like, Oh, I'm being lectured, but there's still these like very unquestioned assumptions, very traditional assumptions here, then it's a little bit more grating.
0: Yeah, and and I feel I mean I I love in science fiction where you have different societies and and you're like oh what if things were this way I, I, so I, I think yeah. I really liked that in this book I mean the 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 moment that sort of I, I I was sort of breaking my suspension of disbelief is there's this part where this you know young woman marries into Manny's uh lion or clan or whatever they call it and um and it's like the custom that on the wedding night the the new bride has sex with the oldest man in the group who's this, who's described as being this sort of like geriatric grandpa who's uh, you know, has dementia or something. And it's just a little hard for me to believe that this would ever really catch on, you know, like in a, in a society where people had options, you know, that this, that a a critical mass of people, of, of young women would, would be choosing to, to marry into this sort of,
1: so, uh, arrangement
3: this and wouldn't be the, the first time supposed or to last have time
1: too right that it's really emphasized this idea that like that women are really scarce and so they're treated almost as these kind of like sacred objects which is kind of you know weird and and slightly uncomfortable in its own way but um the idea that they would be like yeah yeah we'll sign up for this thing <laughs> where uh, it, it's sort of hard to imagine Sorry, Lisa, go ahead. What what were you saying?
3: Oh, uh, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. Um, But I would say science fiction has often treated women as scarce resources, right? What do humans and aliens always fight over? Like water and women, right? I mean, this is the Mars attack scenario. (laughs) So Uh, uh, the fact that he treats women as resources isn't surprising. But yeah, you would think that when women have more choices, they would actually maybe make other choices. I don't know.
0: How about about Robbie? What did you think of the... uh... Yeah,
3: I mean... The only,
2: so Manny, like, this is all coming from Manny's perspective, and he, it feels like he's, he's trying to be, uh, Heinlein wants him to be, like, a sort of blue collar, everyman type person, like the kind of person Agreed. who, you know, yeah. who would be, you know, whistling at the pretty lady who walks by while he's on lunch break at the construction site. Now he's a, you know, computer engineer in the future, but, like, it's that, like, almost that kind of cultural, Thing is, how the whole story is being filtered through. I think because Heinlein wanted to suggest that, you know, that's the kind of person, or maybe in his view, that's the kind of person who leads a revolution that, you know, while supported by the brilliant philosopher person and and then this, you know, the literal deus ex machina that makes the whole thing possible. But that the, you know, the leader of the revolution is not someone with, or is someone actually with a lot of technical expertise, but not, you know, didn't go to military college, didn't have this, you know, long history of public speaking, or is you know, just, a guy who would, you know, an auto mechanic type person in the in the future that that kind of makes some of now. That's not probably the reason the you know the sexism exists in the book. It's the little reason reason is probably because Pylon is a product of his time, but um, that that affects how I see some of it at least because um, it's it's that character and it's just kind of a character who feels familiar.
3: I think that's actually a really interesting point, right? And usually the everyman character is different than the computer engineer character, but they're, yeah, they're kind of right. collapsed here. That is interesting. And it does sort of make some sense of it, like narratively speaking. I mean, culturally, I think we all understand it, but yeah, huh? I like that. That's cool.
0: Yeah. And then, um, then the other, as I said, the other big aspect of this imagined future society is that there's basically no government. And that was the other thing I thought was really interesting. And so actually my favorite scene probably in the book is there's a, a character named Stu who's come from Earth and gotten himself yes. into trouble. And so these and, and so these young um these young men are, are are basically threatening to throw him out of an airlock because he uh you know he tried to kiss a, a woman without consent and so this gets brought to to Manny. And it turns out that in this society there's no legal system and that basically anyone can sort of freelance as a judge and both parties pay that person to render a verdict, and if they like the verdict, then they both abide by it. And if they don't like the verdict, then they settle it with a a knife fight duel. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was all pretty cool. But I'm, I'm curious, Robbie, what did you uh, what you think of that?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot of I mean, if you want to get into weirdo libertarian stuff, there's a lot of appreciation for among some libertarians, like like anar you know very anarchist people. For, uh, non-state kind of justice, uh, common law sort of justice, where there's just a, right, there's a tradition of how disputes are handled, and you go to a judge when you have some kind of dispute. Uh, like medieval Iceland had something kind of like this. Again, I'm not, not, not just a casual libertarian, not an expert on any of these (laughs) subjects. But, uh, you know, I meet and, you know, talk with, with people, readers, and people at conferences and things. Uh, who are interested in, in those ideas. There's actually, there's a great, uh, there's a libertarian professor I quite like called, uh, John Hasness, who's a libertarian, uh, legal guy, uh, truly an anarchist who, uh, who talks a lot about, uh, common law and how he, he thinks common law, uh, all, all good law originates in the English common law and all bad law was, is randomly proposed by legislatures. Um, and the good law is the law that the legislators Approved, but it's already just what the common law was. Um, so there, there are a lot of uh, that kind of sentiment here. Uh, clearly, uh, where where you know technically you can do anything because there isn't a formal law, but it kind of regulates itself, sort of, not not perfectly in all cases, but sort of works itself out because they have kind of traditions for how these things are handled, and nobody wants to cause too much trouble. Or the kind of person who does cause too much trouble just doesn't survive very long in the society.
0: Right. And so I have to say that this doesn't seem that appealing to me, that the, the, he's kind of like, well, anytime someone really steps out of line, the solution is this sort of extrajudicial uh, summary execution,
2: you know. Yeah. Um, but, well, well, but I think it's kind of suggested that it doesn't really happen or, you know, maybe it happened once and then everybody kind of got it. And it, it's, it, it's sort of the threat of that. Sort of regulates the pro. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I see why it, it's not an appealing idea necessarily, but <laughs> that's I, sort of the supposition I get.
3: Yeah, I thought it was kind of like dueling in the seventeenth and eighteenth yeah. centuries, like something that didn't really, like a lot of people threatened to do and didn't actually happen too often. But I guess sometimes, still, uh, yeah, well, which, fight, which makes it, sense
2: given that the whole thing is is yes. so uh, you know American Revolution seemed yes.
3: ultimately, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah until yeah, it becomes well, Huck Finn at the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and it's very sort of like frontier American frontier justice sort of, yeah. you know. Um yeah, there's obviously huge. You know, you can tell it was written by an American author. I mean, that's that's there's a lot of, <laughs> in the book. Um Anthony, what do you think of the uh uh
1: legal system or lack thereof? I mean, it it's a, like a lot of things in the book. It's one of those things where I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting to think about. I don't know if I would want to live in that system, but it also then sort of, you know, ca- like makes you think about the existing system in, in different light where you're like, well, like, I don't like the idea that some random person off the street is judge, you know, is, is in charge of this. But like, if we look at our existing judicial system, there's certainly a lot of like biases and problems that go in when there's a jury trial or, you know, with the judge. And so maybe like this is just putting all of those problems up front and just admitting that it's very <laughs> arbitrary. Um, and and then i think you know also thinking about all of this stuff as occurring very specifically as, as i think everyone was saying in the context of this very frontier environment where part you know and it's in the title itself is is part of the idea is that you're, everyone is uh there there's sort of death lurking on around every corner if you screw up in any way you're dead because you're on the moon um and and so these are also systems that are you know supposedly uh come into place because it, it's this society of people who are the 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 really tough uh pioneers, uh prisoners turned pioneers who can survive in this really ruthless environment, which I also find interesting.
0: I'm actually curious, Anthony, I know you're you know you're a big fan of the dispossessed, and Anthony and Lisa were both on on our panel about the dispossessed that we did. And um it seems like to me there's a lot of similarities between this and the dispossessed, right? I mean, in both cases you have kind of two worlds. And one of them has no uh, laws, really. And then in both of them, somebody from the society with no laws comes to the one that's more like contemporary Earth and kind of, um, you know, comments on it and then goes home and stuff. So I don't know if there was any, if Le Guin um, consciously was reacting to uh, Moon Moon is a harsh mistress in any way, but there were some striking parallels, I thought.
1: I agree that it felt like in some ways it's it's a very helpful contrast for me because in a lot of ways the dispossessed is pretty close to representing kind of like my political philosophy and and the moon is a harsh mistress is not. And so like just sort of comparing the two um, like politically you can, I can sort of see, Oh, like I agree that like this sort of, I'm on board with this very like suspicion of the state, suspicion of authority and trying to, you know, have a sort of much more uh, free society is very interesting uh, I'm less confident in sort of like market mechanisms and capitalism as, as the ways that we would get there. Um, but I think, you know, they are narratively very similar. Um, and I, and one of the things I've, I've tried to ask myself in terms of like, that certainly I like the moon is a harsh mistress, but I love the dispossessed and how much of that is just because I agree with the dispossessed more. And to what extent is it actually a better novel? And I do think that the dispossessed does allow, allow for a little bit more, Argument, Which I think is kind of what's missing from a lot of later Heinlein is that it's, there's what looks like argument, but it really is just one character saying something that's obviously wrong and then they get lectured for many (laughs) pages. Um, And I'm sure that happens in the dispossessed, but I think it's less obvious, at least to me when it does.
0: Yeah.
1: Lisa, what do you think of The Dispossessed versus uh,
0: Moon is a Harsh Mistress?
3: Um, Well, you know, I I think that we need to read The Female Man so we can have a political system for me in here somewhere, um, (laughs) personally. Uh, But I think it's really cool to compare that. I had never thought about putting the Heinlein and the Le Guin stories together, but that's very productive. And then you could keep doing that, right? Like then you could include Stan Robinson's Mars trilogy because it has a sort of similar movement um and i was thinking about the fact that mars throws a moon at the earth just the way that you know the the moon throws rocks at the earth earth gets pummeled a lot by people on other planets <laughs> um, with with the only means they have like other parts of their planet which is really interesting um and a cool trope in and of itself so yeah i don't know if i had to pick one of these two worlds to live on ugh, i'm going to go with le guins because And here's why I do actually think that a lot of the experiments in Heinlein are really interesting, both politically and in terms of the family stuff, etc. But what scares me um, as as a woman is that I feel women's place in that society as Heinlein imagines, it depends not just on him sort of thinking through things as an American, but as a Southerner, like he he imagines this to be a chivalrous society. And without that chivalry there women would become slaves immediately. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's a scary society. And I feel like without this sort of kind of Southern chivalry, niceness that people have uh, towards women, towards certain kinds of people, uh, beautiful losers, for instance, in this society, I don't know, I think it could be a scary turn into a scary place very quickly.
0: Yeah, I mean, it that's kind of what I was saying is
3: ooh, it could become the handmaid's tale very quickly. Right. Where women become right, scarce right, resources that have to be carefully managed by men.
2: Well, there's also a a very, very uh, definite moment in the book where if, you know, Heinlein was not obviously Heinlein was. Pretty committed right to depict this is going to be an american revolution style yeah. thing on the moon and a, a, a way to kind of advertise some of my libertarian or even anarchist ideas and just kind of show how that 's happening if if that wasn 't the goal like there 's the moment in the revolution where you know they have a a, a fake you know kind of big brother esque uh, possibly you know I'm a- i literally imaginary in this case possibly imaginary in the 1984 case you know leader of the revolution who has taken power they say they're you know we're going to do censorship but it's only going to be temporary all that stuff mm. it, like it, it could immediately become yeah. a more repressive society than the, than the one they had before <laughs> in, in a sort yeah. of you know the communist party takeover ends up being worse sort of Thing which is obviously not what Heinlein had any interest in doing, and I, you you know pretty unless you're totally oblivious to where the book's headed that that's not going to happen. But re- reading it this time, thinking you know, thinking okay, yeah. is that this this could definitely be the be the plot thread from here on out.
0: Yeah, well, because well, the book is very. I mean, Heinlein seems very cynical about democracy. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, he he basically seems to be of the of the opinion that you have to have a small group of smart, competent people calling the shots. And the the masses are just kind of like uh, an annoyance to be uh, dealt with, you know. And so in this revolution, they they set up this legislature, which is just kind of a bunch of, you know, talking sort of self-important talking heads who don't really make any important decisions. You know, it's the
2: Yammerheads. What is he called? (laughs) (laughs) Yammerheads? He has a specific derisive term for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's this, but it's this you know, this small cadre of, of heroes that are really calling the shots through the whole thing. And and we even find oh. out, like, Manny was not even really he didn't even really know what was going on. I mean it's really sort of prof calling the shots and uh Mike sort of in, uh, engineering everything and uh um there was even a line I wrote it down. Um uh wait, where was that? It was, but it was it was basically like uh, oh yeah, parliamentary bodies all through history, when they accomplished anything, owed it to a few strong men who dominated the rest. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, oh, and also they, um, they, uh, we we we, it's heavily, it's either stated or heavily implied that, that Manny gets elected to public office through a fake, you know, through a uh, an election that Mike is rigged, and um, and they they sort of uh, set off this revolution by lying to the public about how bad the um, the authority forces have acted or the earth forces have acted. So, I mean, it's definitely not a, He uh, doesn't seem there's to have a lot of faith in democracy. little
2: disagreement between the, the, between a uh, Wyo and Manny and the professor and Mike, right? There's yeah. small tactical, dis- but there's, there's never any major betrayals. Nobody's ever mm-hmm. pushed out of the circle. It's, they're no very, schisms. they no. remain a pretty solid team.
1: Yeah. Uh, Anthony, you want to expand on that? Well, it's it's interesting to think about as like, um, you know, again as somebody who I I've, I'm very suspicious of this idea of like oh there should be you know the the competent man plus men plus one woman you know should run everything and then we can create the illusion of democracy but that's not really how we we arrive at the correct choices is, is something that I sort of intrinsically resist but then you sort of I think that that makes me recognize the extent to which I have this very romanticized idea of what these deliberative bodies can be. But then if we look at the reality, it's hard to argue with what, um, you know, the, the, the the criticisms and skepticism that, that Heinlein has. Um, at the same time that I recognize that like this idea that, Oh, it'll be fine as long as the sort of the smart people are in charge and secretly running thing is just as much, I think, kind of a, um, a foundational myth of like science fiction, you know, probably through Heinlein uh, as anything else. So I, I'm suspicious of that idea, even if I don't necessarily think that the, the alternative is, is that much better.
0: Right. Well, because this is how dictators always seem to always tend to come to power, right, is that the, the democratic process is not addressing people's problems. And the dictator says, or, you know, the, the incipient dictator comes in and says, let me... I'm the one who can solve the problems. Just give me the power temporarily and I'll fix all this stuff. And then once you've done that, they're like, okay, psych, you're not getting the power back now. (laughs) Uh, So, so yeah, but I mean, this is really, I mean, in a way, it's sort of a fantasy. It's sort of like, you know, there's, um, in the Turkey city lexicon, there's this uh, entry called the cozy catastrophe and this is where the world world ends. It's like this Mm post-apocalyptic thing. But as far as the character, the characters are having a great time, you know, they're, you know they get cars and guns and they can <laughs> go to the ball and take anything they want and get girls and all this stuff and so it's like it's this weird juxtaposition of this this you know the 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 world is in this state of horror but the characters are having a grand old time and i feel like this is kind of like the equivalent of that for a revolution it's like the cozy revolution i mean this this really makes a revolution seem like a great time like 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 just a lot of fun um at least that was my that was my impression Uh, You know, you read this, at least I read this book and I'm like, I want to have a revolution. I want to start a revolution. Like this, this really seems great. Um, But so Lisa, what do you, what do you think about that?
3: I read this book and I don't want to start a revolution because it's profoundly cynical about how you do so, right? The reason that Wyo fails and has to have the revolution taken from her by all of these clear-sighted engineers, right? Is that she wants to build a revolution based on love and connection and sympathy between people, And they tell her, oh, silly girl, the only way you're ever going to get people to fight a revolution is to do it by hate. And we live in a moment where I just I can't even, you know, I I got nothing else to say right now. It's it, it hits home. I feel in a very uncomfortable way right now. And it's it's played as a kind of sexy cynicism in the book. And I don't know, I'm just not into it.
1: Let's talk about Mike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I think that's the other thing that's also a way, in a way, how Heinlein acknowledges that the revolution in the book is a fantasy because the whole thing hinges not only on the the lunar rebellion having possession of the only sentient AI, but that it's like a secret and um, no one else knows about it, and it just so happens that. Uh, you know, the one of the leaders of the revolution is the best friend of the AI. And so much of and, and I mean, I love the book for how much detail it goes into sort of the practical plans and and how they implement the revolution. But all of it hinges on Mike. And, and yeah. so like, you don't really have a revolution, unless you have those very specific circumstances, which I mean, Mike is such an interesting character that I didn't mind that too much. But it in some ways it feels like consciously or unconsciously it's acknowledging that like oh right like you this doesn't actually work as a revolution
2: but it does hit i feel like it does hit a lot of beats that that don't that feel realistic uh ish in it or or at least are so Reminiscent or echoes of how of how the American Revolution worked, from like the kind of Boston mm-hmm. massacre sort of parallel mm-hmm. yeah. uh, with the uh, with the 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 rape of the lunar citizen that starts that stuff off to the kind of um, obviously this is an extremely competently run uh, run revolution, but with you know the standpoint of we're going to basically just make things so difficult for the far away. Uh, colonizers that they eventually say this is not worth worth it, and we should just be trading partners, and everyone would be happier with that. Which you know, ki- fairly sort of closely corresponds to uh to how things go, and then with you know, with Mike being the again the Deus Ex Machina, the absolute science fiction thing where this couldn't have happened without him, and it's just kind of it's not not magical, but it's very unexplained why how exactly you know that's the situation they have they have this ma- massive advantage although i did uh think of that during the during the literal you know bombing of earth phase of the of the book uh which reminded me of uh of um of uh uh japan of the you know defeat of japan with mm. uh, nuclear weapons but mm-hmm. uh, you know at a moment where mm-hmm. uh, a similar moment where a brief period of time where America had acquired a Mike-esque super weapon thing that only we had that allowed us to bring an immediate end to that war in, you know, incomprehensible just, it's over, they have, they, we, we did it, we did it again, they surrender, uh, reminded me of the kind of advantage that Mike uh, also gives his side.
0: Yeah, well, and there's no question that Heinlein knows a lot about revolutions. So, I mean, like, this this book isn't fantastical in, in that sense. Like, I mean, it, this book is, you know, it's almost like a, a manual of how to run a revolution. I mean, there's just, inc- you know, there's like hundreds of pages. There's got to be hundreds of pages in this book that are just basically explaining how, the logistics of how they run this revolution. Um, if you haven't seen it, there's an amazing TV Tropes page about this book. I just want to quote this part. It says... Uh, Having a sentient supercomputer as the key member of the revolution certainly helps. So does having another major player be a man who studied revolution to an extent that would make Che Guevara look like a hobbyist. <laughs> yeah. And. That's funny. I mean that's yeah and and so Heinlein I mean I actually at this stage I I don't really remember or, or if I ever knew a lot about Heinlein's biography but just just in, I was doing a little research and it was kind of interesting because you know he started out working for Upton Sinclair um, mm-hmm. trying to kind of bring socialism to the U.S. and was really involved in that before he sort of, of according to Asimov when uh, you know Heinlein's second wife was very left wing and then his third wife Virginia was was more right wing and and Heinlein kind of you know, shifted in, um, you know, in the same over the same time period. But I mean, but he did, you know, he was involved pretty actively in politics for a while and obviously knew a lot about politics and had obviously done a ton of research for this book. Um, so it's it's not the um, like the logistics of how to run a revolution. That stuff's all really, really solid. I mean, what, what to me is is sort of the fantasy part is as, as other people were saying is just like how little goes wrong you know like how like yeah. comfortable the, the characters generally are running it's a this super revolution.
3: middle-class revolution you know it feels it is like there's no one's really poor or desperate and like no one has to turn against each other like it's pretty easy for them to all get on the same page about what they want I'd like to see America, I'd like to see any country get that much on the same page.
1: (laughs) You know, I mean, it just, there's the fantasy, right? Well, there are people who disagree, but they are very marginal. And so they, you know, they're, they're, you know, really far out from the head of the revolution. So they get distracted by getting involved in legislature or whatever. And Mm -hmm. then, then they can get focused, continue, you know, executing the revolution without too many distractions. Right.
0: Yeah, but but I, I definitely was sort of expecting a major betrayal or, you know, some huge falling out among the characters or something. And, and there's never anything like that. It's 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 all pretty smooth sailing as far as it goes. Um, but isn't that
3: the dream of science fiction that like clear-sighted engineers and their beautiful daughters and girlfriends and wives will like put aside their differences and work together to build a better future like that's so classically science fiction (laughs) so yeah i guess i I wasn't surprised about that um
0: well i I think there's a reason why heinlein was so popular and part of it is that he creates this very appealing these very appealing worlds i mean you kind of
3: yeah
0: i mean for for you know by by the standards of 1966 Mm -hmm.
3: but i mean there is he does you know, and, and families, right? Like these groups of people who find each other and like make the future happen. It's kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I, I think people reading Heinlein in the '60s, you know, they wanted to be in the futures so that he was. Yes, you know, the future yes. seems like a, like a great uh-huh. place to to go. Oh yeah.
2: there isn't even Agreed. really a major villainous character. Actually, I mm-hmm. mean, there are obviously many. My the, the warden is sort of a minor villain, but doesn't really ever come alive in a, a very. Mm-hmm identifiable way and then that's even going well beyond anyone else maybe the maybe the member of the of the of the uh sort of earth united uh, countries whatever, whatever their organization thing is who he's, who uh, manny and the professor speak to perhaps uh but it, certainly no one who really you know sticks it there, there's no yeah. evil computer trying to outsmart mike on earth no. there's you know none of that kind of thing
0: there's, there's no one whose name I remember. Right. Who's a- <laughs> yeah.
3: That's a good point, though. You're right, right? The bad guy is just sort of the system, the man. Yeah. It's very 1960s. It's <laughs> just the man.
1: <laughs> but what's remarkable is I think when you talk about it this way, you would imagine that this would be a very dry, boring book. It's like, oh, like we're just going to describe how they're going to execute the revolution, and then they execute it, and it all goes pretty smoothly. But I think just as a measure of Heinlein's skill, is that actually it's all incredibly compelling, like all the details about how yes. they actually, you know, put these different cells of the revolution together. All of that is, like, really interesting. And, and he just explains it so clearly, and, and it just has this real, like, narrative drive to it. And then even though there's no villain per se or uh, no, like, major betrayals, there are these, like, big battles at the end. And and so, like they're, like, I think he writes, you know, Battles arguably as well as anyone in science fiction, and so the whole book like just reads incredibly quickly despite the absence of these certain like you know antagonistic figures. Mm-hmm. I mean, Robbie,
0: you um, said earlier that you just really enjoyed going back to this book. Is there anything else you want to say about
2: why yeah, you? Yeah, uh, I, like I, I so liked. The early planning stages the I, well I think they they speak to probably an experience most people have had not not a not the specific experience of like planning how to overthrow the government, but you know that sort of like late night dorm room energy where like you're sitting around with your friends and you've all had like a really good idea for something and you're just like so excited about it, and you're talking about it all night, and then like you're ordering pizza late at night, and then like that that the, the you know, when they're all staying in the kind of hotel type thing. And, uh, and, and, and the professor's having his ideas and he doesn't even know about Mike yet. And like, you know, his, his, he's, he's going to be even more committed to this when he finds out about that. Uh, it, it's really exciting in the, in the early stages, I think, or it, it speaks to, uh, or it reminds me of, you know, that kind of experience, which I think a lot of people, uh, have had, um, that is fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, on the TV tropes page, it, it mentions, I don't know if these are, if this was literally the first book to do a lot of this stuff, but it. I think, like, the, you know, the, the, the way the computer is portrayed, you know, being, like, all hooked up to everything and, you know, generating, uh, its own voice and fake computer graphic images of itself, uh, the idea of, you know, the colony tossing, uh, you know, rocks at Earth, um, and, and, like, the, uh, you know, the, the, society on the moon being very different i mean i think there's like there were a lot of ways in which i get the sense that this book was pretty revolution, like no pun intended pretty revolutionary um when it came out but i guess i mean at least you would you would probably know a lot more about this than i do but how um like 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 oh you said let's talk about mike right like how yeah. how ahead of its time or was was you know- the
3: i it's funny because just as you were talking about that, I was looking up when um, the book Colossus, the Forbin Project came out and then the movie, too. I don't know if any of you have seen it. But if you want to talk about the evil Mike, um, it, have any of you ever read or seen Colossus, the Forbin
1: Project? I have not. I have oh, not.
3: wow. OK. The United States' war, gov- war computers uh, end up hooking up with the USSR's war computers and they decide the real enemy is man and then the hijinks <laughs> ensue. Mm-hmm. Um, Humanity is enslaved, forced through some really bizarre uh, experiments. By the, it's it's crazy, crazy thing. So it's interesting that uh, you know other people are sort of playing, beginning to play with that idea of like.
0: Wait, sorry, sorry when, when was that? The co- Colossus, uh, 1970
3: 1970. 1970 okay, but this, the was, this was
0: so this was 66. So this is right. That. So well,
3: I'm saying it's like the same time period, and the book yeah. I think is earlier. I can't find when the book is from, but the movie oh. is 70, so the book has to be a little earlier. Ah, um, oh, 66. The novel came out in 66. So everyone in 1966 is starting to write up computers that get personalities and, you know, have agendas beyond our own. It's really anticipating cyberpunk, right? I mean, oh, wow. I just realized that Mike is like Winter Mutant Neuromancer. He's got his own own stuff going on, um, which sometimes coincides with the humans. Maybe a little more. He likes humans more. Um, But, yeah, I think it's – right, well – And Asimov is exploring this idea, actually, in the robot stories in the 40s and the 50s, right? I mean, by the end of his robot sequence, he is imagining world computers that run everything and are carefully managing humanity. And, right, I mean, Asimov always imagines them as, as nannies and nurses and that they'll take care of us as babysitters, like the best babysitters ever, right? But Mike is a pal and i think that that's different he's like so much more of a fully again realized person and that's that is new in science fiction at that time and he's a good guy he's not a rampaging robot right and that's
2: what's so interesting yeah yes. I, I wonder yeah. if it's become more over time uh common to depict like the all knowing machine as evil uh i have no idea b- oh, I've actually, the, you know- oh i've actually oh, i've done tell, this call. history they start yes. out <laughs>
3: evil they start out evil must always be killed Asimov shifts the tide in the 40s and 50s. Then you get a good a slew of good robots and AI's going up to about Mike, and then of course we get Hal, and then things start right. to go south again.
2: The I have no mouth and I must scream one. Right. Uh, yes. the same time. I yeah.
3: am. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Real bad.
3: Yeah. But Possibly it was it the was worst.
2: yeah
0: yeah. <laughs> but it was it was specifically the the idea of the machine. You know this idea like well sound. Is just waves that you could generate synthetically and, you know, pictures are just photons you could generate synthetically. And so the the idea that the computer generates its own virtual avatar, basically, you know, with its own fake voice and picture and everything in 1966, I just that that seems like I don't know how how much. That yeah, that's pretty before. early. No,
3: it, it is. It's pretty early to be starting to imagine virtual reality, essentially. Right. Um Yeah, no, I think it's again like a lot of things. I mean, this is what's so maddening about Heinlein is like he has a lot of neat ideas, right? And and especially his like he has these sort of cool, cool technologies for sure.
0: Yeah. So, so you said um, Lisa that you thought Heinlein did Mike dirty at the end. I do. I I do.
3: Yeah. You know. I mean, I understand that at some level, Mike has to disappear at the end of the revolution because. He is literally just sort of the mechanism that allows it to happen. And if you have Mike persist afterwards, the story has to go somewhere really different. Right. And and I'm not sure you can just sort of end it where it would end. Um, and I just, but I'm sad that in the end we are, we're doing spoilers, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the end, Mike, for whatever reason uh, disappears and, and never comes back. And Manny is sort of searching for him a lot at the end, right through, through the years as he gets older. And 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 i just i think it's so sad and and we never really know exactly what happened to mike um right i mean it seems to me he he was overtaxed and in too many places at once and that core identity sort of disintegrated but but we don't know for sure and at one point manny speculates he's like a ghost trapped in the machine wandering around trying to find a way to reconnect with us i find this very tragic and sad and i i want mike back
0: <laughs> well but it's it's this very i mean it's very common idea in any sort of fantasy and science fiction story that there's some sort of breach of normality that that creates the story and then it's a very natural story structure for things to return to the status quo and that makes the story feel over at the end and so right so this this supercomputer coming into existence and spearheading this revolution and then disappearing sort of is a natural narrative thing but i i feel like yeah. like real like hard science fiction what you would want is to say, no, what are the implications? Okay, we have the supercomputer that can do everything. What are the implications? And it's sort of too easy to me if it just disappears to the end. Right, you
3: know, right, right. I want to know what happens next if he sticks around, right? I mean, does he keep running the society? Does he step down and just become another person in it? I See, I agree. It's too easy. And it's also uh, it's just a little sad. I think I'm impressed. Heinlein like sort of tugs at my heartstrings with the disappearance of Mike too, which just sort of bumps me out emotionally as well <laughs> as intellectually.
0: Yeah, but it seems like if you were to continue the story, you would start getting into some of the stuff that Yuval Noah Harari talks about in uh, in Homo Deus, where if the AI's AI always right, you know, at a certain point, don't you just sort of uh, defer every decision to the AI, and then what what what's, what what purpose are you yeah. serving really at all? Well-
3: well, and also, right, I mean there's some dangerous aspects of Mike. Mike has figured out what orgasms feel like and what they feel like is when you throw bombs at people. <laughs> right. I mean, like, you're gonna let this AI keep going. I mean, although it's great when they're like when Mike's like, you can't ever Manny says you can't ever do that again. He's like, No worries, I taped it, I'll watch it anytime I want. <laughs> that also feels pretty prescient, right? And very modern. Like that those moments when he really connects with us.
0: Yeah. Uh Anthony, anything else you wanna add?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think that Mike's ending is feels in a lot of ways like the right one dramatically because it, it's not just that he is destroyed. It's that like the sentient part of him goes away, but the computer right. is still there. And that in a lot of ways feels even more tragic that you're like talking yes. to this thing that used to be your friend, but your friend is gone. I mean, that's really powerful. Um, but then I agree that as science fiction, it feels like it's sort of backing away from the more interesting implications of, of Mike's existence that it, I don't, yeah, like the, that, it seemed like on, on that, but that maybe he would have had needed to like, it's just such a different ending. If Mike still exists um, I think then things are just way more complicated and arguably much darker and, and, and other things that he would have to wrestle with, which I almost wish he'd done, but I can understand why it's just neater to be like, okay, let's just sort of cut things off there.
0: Oh, mm-hmm.
1: uh, Robbie. Yeah,
2: I, yeah i uh i mean i i liked <laughs> i liked that development i mean i di- i didn't i i was also emotionally affected by it he was you you love the character he's great uh i i like the ambiguity of it in a in a work that doesn't have a lot of ambiguity that is very mm-hmm. step one step two step three and you know not a lot of surprises um i i like that this is handled with a certain amount of yes you can come up with a technical explanation for it i mean one is sort of offered but, maybe, right, maybe Mike is voluntarily stepping back, um, maybe, you know, maybe, and also his, right, his commitment to the cause is sort of, it's sort of a personal commitment to these people that he happens to like most of all humans, uh, like his personal relationship with Manny and Manny's friends, which, which then, yes, would, would get very weird in a scenario where, you know, Manny and the professor and Wyo are no longer, you know, the, the de facto ruling uh uh parties or if, if if Mike's involvement in all this were to become public or yeah what well, like who who does who does who does Mike endorse in the, like the future political struggles uh it would all get very weird um so may, but maybe Mike foresees that and just steps back maybe he's protecting Manny in some other way maybe he's sad about the amount of violence that that this Caused I did it's it's left very unexplained in a interesting way to me that I kind of like.
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting too. I don't think we mentioned that Prof dies right at the end too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so these two like basically superhuman characters who who ran this whole revolution right. are are sort of shuffled off the stage. So it's almost like you know the the parents die and the kids have to you know go on without them. or you know, sort of step off. You know, the
2: Prof dies in a very. He's an old man. He's taxed by this journey to earth. It's weakened him. You know, he's, he's had to be up all night all the time. You know, it's taxing, planning this. He's an older man. Uh, he dies the way you would expect, but i you know, Mike dies if that's what happens in the kind right. of, oops, I spilled coffee on my computer. Now it doesn't work anymore. I didn't like that. Just, that's just how that happens.
3: So I was looking at, I went back and looked at the last exchange that Manny and Mike have because I was curious about it. And it's really actually very strange. Um, And when you look at it, Mike starts talking, again, more like a computer and less like a human in their last set of exchanges. Um, His sentences get very clipped. They just sort of cut down to subject and verbs. And the last thing he says is Mike, because he's telling Manny that uh, the ships are headed towards him. And Manny says, they're going to either blow you up or capture you. And he says, that is not the way I analyze it. And that's the last thing he says. And it's such a sort of weird Thing and I remember it, it, it kind of caught me because it felt so out of the pattern in which Mike normally speaks, and I was like, "Wow, is this because he's overtaxed and he's losing his identity as he's you know overextended and trying to do things, or is he pulling back?" You know, at this is interesting moment, and, and it's sort of um, I wonder, you know, it's it, in a book. I agree without much subtlety. There's a lot of ambiguity in what happens to Mike at the end. It's interesting. It's the literary moment, actually, in the text in some ways. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, well, it's making me – there's a novel – one of my favorite novels is by James Morrow, and it's called um, Towing Jehovah.
2: Oh, and yeah. And
0: the premise is that God dies and his giant body falls out of the sky and lands in the ocean, and then humanity has to deal with, you know, what does this mean? But but it basically – like, sorry, a little bit of a spoiler, I guess, but it, it basically uh, comes out that God has chosen to die so that humanity can kind of, like, step up and, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, like, like children, you know, assuming the role of their parents. And mm-hmm. so it makes – what you were just saying makes me wonder if – Mike has some, that same idea, like the god has to step back into the shadows so that the humans can, you know, reach their full potential or something. Um, I mean, I, I guess we should say that the, the way it's explained in the novel, as I understand it, was that, you know, like Earth attacks the moon and there's enough damage to Mike's, like, network of systems that his, um, like, number of, like... Neurons or whatever has hit, may have fallen below some critical uh, threshold to yeah. to attain sentience. So that's at least one fairly mm-hmm. you know mundane or sort of uh, you know like mechanistic explanation for that. But but yeah, I think like what you're saying, um, Lisa does definitely uh, suggest that Mike either knows what's going to happen to him or yeah has some, ag- has some agenda.
3: But he seems to have a sense that he's, I mean, well, he does. He literally has a sense he's not going to be around, right? Like, because he keeps preparing them. He's like, I could get knocked out. I could get knocked out. you got to have the backup plans, right? And he's printing all those backup plans. So one way or another, it seems like he has a sense he may not be in the picture at the end.
1: But one of the other interesting things about Mike is that, at least the sense I get of him, is that he's not particularly committed to the revolution in an ideological sense, oh, no. but rather that he just, you know, A, he can be bribed that like, it's like, all right, well, if I do revolutionary work for you, then you'll like tell me some more jokes and we can like work and I can understand humor more. And also it's like, well, you're my friend. So I want to help you out as my friend. So it's in, in some ways less about this sort of grand plan or that he has this grand plan, but it comes from this very small thing, which I found really interesting
0: so what do you that's an interest so what, what do you think why do you think then Mike would be stepping
1: back or, or whatever right and, and so that's why it's harder to I guess well so I think it's in, part of that's I think why Mike is just an interesting character is because he's not is that in some ways he's so omniscient and yet he's so human in other ways but it does make me resist the interpretation that he is stepping back for these sort of really grand reasons
2: there is a a, a sort of um, in, in other omniscient supercomputer type things, the often portrayed as having a fascination with with games or jokes yes. or that kind of stuff. I, I was actually thinking a lot of uh, one of the Dark Tower series by Stephen King, uh, the mm-hmm. Evil Train from the middle book uh, that loves riddles and it, it demands that they tell him riddles and uh, is defeated by being told a joke instead of a riddle um or the or the 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 war games movie the tic tac toe type thing uh mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff uh but you know mike coming before all of that obviously
3: yeah well asimov's well, robots loved stories so that goes mm. all the way back to that mm. um every one well, of his robot stories involves a robot listening to stories
0: well and i don't know if we said this explicitly but so so mike likes jokes and so the whole first chapter is you know um, he, Mike wants Manny to bring him jokes, and he's like, "Here's some, here's 300 jokes I came up with. Do you think these are funny and stuff?" And it is sort of like a um a principle of story of sort of classical story plot composition that the beginning, you know, that the ending comes full circle back to the beginning, which makes you wonder if we are meant to wonder if this has all been some sort of joke or, you know, or something because otherwise there's not a lot of payoff for the whole joke thing. Mm-hmm. Um but, but is 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 somehow, yeah, I don't know, just the hum does does the fact that Mike is obsessed with jokes what what do we make of that at the end?
3: um, Mike is obsessed with jokes, and we should talk about that, but he's also developing a conscience over the course of the story, and one of the things that they notice like towards the end, um is that he's starting to feel guilty about like any time like if he makes any mistake at all and anyone gets hurt or anything. And I just thought that that was interesting. We start to see that change in his personality and that right before he disappears, the thing that starts the final conversation is he says something and Manny says, you sound tired. And it's just what strange things to say to your computer. Um, I just Mm. wanted to say it's really interesting. He humanizes, he humanizes, he humanizes, and then he disappears. I I just, I, I, I don't know what to say. It's fascinating.
0: I mean, um I don't know if everybody watched uh, Love, Death and Robots, but in season mm. one there's this episode, Zima Blue, and the prem it's based on an Alistair Reynolds short story, and the premise basically is that there's this pool cleaning robot who gets uh augmented and augmented and augmented to the point where he's this uh he has a human body and he's this genius artist and he, he does all his great art and then at the end he decides he'd just rather go back to being a pool cleaning robot mm. and to to live this simple life where he just has this simple task to do and uh, isn't bothered by all these, you know, all the things that people <laughs> worry about all the time. And I wonder if there's something like that going on that uh, that Mike has, you know, he's he's like a child and then you know this this war is like him being expelled from the garden of eden or something and having seen oh, yeah. all the darkness mm-hmm. he's like i'd yeah. rather just go back to being to doing math to solving to be a being a simple machine that solves math problems and not have to yeah have a conscience and know that i'm killing people and and all this kind of stuff Ooh,
3: i like that how new wave how very 1960s and groovy but that's a cool <laughs> thought
2: well, and isn't the, the one of the last things? I think it's one of the last lines in the book where uh, Manny, almost sort of out of character, a little bit, right? Because he's not—he doesn't come across as deeply he, he doesn't come across as religiously hostile, but says, uh, asks if, uh, asks God if if a uh, supercomputer is one of his creations mm-hmm. in in like a very. Right. Right again. It's yeah. just like this is the this is the interesting literary stuff yeah, in the book. Yeah, all at the very yeah, end. Yeah, right. Good point. Where it's like it's out of character yeah. for Manny to say that because he's so clearly so shaken by having uh, lost his friend. Yeah. But in uh, in, in the way that uh, it made me think of you know the way Asimov sort of or like very directly in in uh, what what is it called? Oh, what is it called? The Last Question. The mm. you know the the, mm. the very advanced when the computer gets yes. advanced enough. And, and if it's super advanced and it's kind, then eventually it's just indistinguishable from God. It is, it's just the thing that turns the lights back on right. to, you know, restart the universe, which is like maybe the mic is taking that role.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting how much we're talking about the very ending of the book, which is, as Robbie says, you know, the whole book is fairly straightforward and unambiguous. And then you have this kind of like weird, un, uh, weirdly ambiguous ending mm-hmm. that's sort of out of... Uh, uh, what's the word out of sync with the rest of the book, but that may be the the most interesting part of the book actually. Um, because I was thinking, you know, if you compare this as we were to the Dispossessed, I mean, the the Dispossessed is a a book that feels a lot more ambiguous. You know, like like the the, the Dispossessed is a book that like the whole book feels like the last chapter of yeah. of Moon is a harsh mistress. Yeah.
3: Um, I think the end of Moon is a harsh mistress feels like the final chapters of Huck Finn. I mean, right? And it, it, you have all this action and all this drama and excitement, which in Huck Finn turns out to be sort of a horrible parody of justice that doesn't need to really happen. Oh, God, maybe that's true. And Moon is a harsh mistress, too. I don't know. Right? But at the end, right, Manny's like Huck. He's really disappointed in society. Even though things have sort of ended the way that they both characters want and, you know, they sort of have the worlds they want, they're still not happy with them. Right? they got to light up for the territories. Mm.
1: Right. And I think that's well, an and sort interesting... of a. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. No, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, I was going to say that that's another thing that's um, interesting about the, co- the comparison between The Dispossessed and uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is that I think both Heinlein and Le Guin are good enough writers that they couldn't be satisfied with just, oh, the society is great and everything's great and yes. the end. Like, there yeah. has to be that note of dissatisfaction. Um, I think that's, as as David was saying, like, that's a much st- stronger uh, thread through the dispossessed, but that it, it, you know, that Heinlein sort of has to, I don't think he would be satisfied with an ending that just said everything was great. Um, and I mean, it's interesting to think about it also in the context of, I don't know if this is actually true, but that there's, you know, a famous essay where Heinlein says, yeah, you should never revise, you should only ever do. Uh, first draft. And so thinking about this whole book is this sort of improvisatory act and, and potentially that he's like, oh, well, here's the happy ending, but this doesn't feel real. Now I need to like insert notes of ambiguity and uh, darkness because that will make this much more satisfying. I have no idea if that's actually what happened, but that is like one way to sort of think about all this stuff kind of crammed into the end.
2: Well, and the whole, the book is never, please correct me if I'm wrong and I missed this, but it's never actually, it's never stated anywhere exactly, like how are we learning, I mean, we're learning this information from Manny, but this is, you know, we're, we're, we're getting the real history of the revolution here, not the, you know, the, the textbook version does not have Mike's involvement. You're, now you're getting, you're getting the real stuff. So what is this? Is this Manny's, you know, memoir? Is this, like, his confession later? Is this—and, you know, maybe it's nothing. It's just the story is the story, but it doesn't— I don't—there's no—it's not resolved in the actual story, right? What, like, what this—like, you're reading the diary of Manny, the true story of the Revolution. Uh, but, it, but it's clear that this, you know, like, this is the real version or the version according to Manny, which is not known to the general public because the general public doesn't know about Mike, which is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, and that makes me think of The Handmaid's Tale again, where the whole thing is sort of at the end, we find out sort of, you know, a, uh, it's like at an academic conference or something after this right. society has fallen. And, and this is, you know, the, the history of what happens. And but that's a really interesting point. Because I mean, the story is told in the first person from Manny's point of view. And there are, like, you can tell that the revolution succeeded. I mean, there's like lines you know, there's a, a there are just these throwaway lines here or there where he's like, and of course we, you know, this was back then, and these days things are different or whatever. Where, you know, you you kind of know that. You, at least you you get at least a strong sense of how things turned out. So that is a really interesting question. Is yeah, like who is the intended audience with you know in the text? Who is the intended audience for for what he's saying?
3: There's no way to tell. It just drops right into the story. It's really interesting. Yeah, there's no yeah. preface or anything. It just I see in Lunaya Pravda that Luna City Council has passed the first reading of a bill to examine da da da, and it goes like right into like him reading the newspaper the day before the revolution begins, basically. So, yeah, who is he talking to? <laughs>
2: He's just talking to the grandkids, the great grandkids, you know, gather around the fire and listen to cra- crazy old Uncle Manny talk about this magic supercomputer that was totally real that actually won the revolution, you know, that kind of thing.
3: Do we have to hear it again? <laughs> we don't believe in Santa anymore either, you know? I mean, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Is that it? Is that it? Is he, oh my God, that would be a cool way to be telling the story.
2: Well, and that's clearly how people would receive it, right? right? Because it, again, my, this is a secret known only to three people. Yeah,
0: I do feel compelled to point out that Heinlein. So Heinlein's rules of writing. Let's see. were like, you must write. You must finish what you write. You must not rewrite except to editorial order. You must send out what you write, and you must keep sending it out until it gets published. So he did rewrite stuff, but only if an editor, you requested it. So got it. Important. Just want to point. Just a wanna, caveat. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. And is there anything, just anything else that anyone else wanted, that anyone wanted to bring up about this book that we haven't uh, talked about yet?
1: Should we talk about the style a little? Cause Dave, I think you were the one who said mm-hmm. that it kind of oh, drove yeah. you away from the book initially, oh, yeah. but
0: yeah, well, well, let me, let me expand on that. Cause yeah, when I was a teenager, you know, I would read golden age science fiction, like the Heinlein Juveniles or Asimov or whatever, and I would, you know, love it. But then I would read a lot of the contemporary science fiction, like that was being published in Asimov's or the magazine of fantasy and, science, fantasy and science fiction or whatever. And a lot of times I just have a really hard time understanding what was going on. I'd be like, is this about clones? Is this set on a moon of Jupiter? Like I would read the whole story and I'm still not sure. And so I really, um, you know, I had a lot of frustration about science fiction that was just not clear and the the sort of cyberpunky. You know, jargon and argot and all that kind of stuff really sort of grated on me. And, you know, so, so when I, uh, when I hit this book, I, yeah, I sort of bounced off it for that reason. Cause I'll explain. So, yeah, we, we said Manny, he, he talks in this, um, this Luna, uh, yeah, like patois, right? Yeah, and 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 because there have been I, this is what I gather because there have been convicts shipped to the moon from all over the world. They're the different cultural influences have all kind of mingled together, and there was some large Russian uh, contingent, and I guess in Russian they don't have definite articles, and so definite articles have kind of dropped out of the Luna speak. Um, and and then there's like um, strange uh, or unfamiliar terminology. There's there's a bunch of foreign words, but then there's just things like they 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 call the inhabitants of the moon loonies and that's just you know from loony and uh, from from luna and lunar and so on but it's just just, there's a lot of stuff like that you kind of just have to pick up and at least when i was like 12 or 13 or whatever uh i I was just frustrated by that so 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 anthony
1: do you want to what do you what do you make of all that uh i think the thing that's most remarkable to me is how quickly it's I, i definitely like when i read that first page i'm like what what is this? What's happening? Um, this, this language is kind of off-putting, but very quickly I just get acclimated to it. And it feels like, like when I, in memory the book is just another Heinlein novel in the typical Heinlein style. And then I go back and like, oh, right. Like, no, this is actually written in this fairly, at least in, in the beginning in this fairly aggressive patois. Um, and I think that's really impressive. Um, I'm not, sure that like every part of it works or you know every combination of linguistic combination but i think the fact that he just pulls it off and makes it fairly seamless by the end is is very uh laudable mm. how about lisa what do you think what do you think of the voice
3: yeah i i like the voice in it um I think the technical voice cracks me up. It's, it's, I don't know if it's techno babble or not. Like uh, I'm persuaded by the descriptions of the revolutionary stuff, but I don't know if they would really work. I would, I I would challenge someone to test them in the real world and let me know. Um, But in terms of like the actual way that the loonies speak, I think it's pretty cool. Um, The very first, I'm actually looking right now at the first two sentences, right? And someone once said that, all great science fiction novels will estrange you in the first paragraph and the best ones will do it in the first sentence or two. And you get like the language (laughs) stuff right away. Right. I see in Lunaya Pravda that Luna city council has passed on first reading a bill to examine license and inspect and tax public food vendors operating inside municipal pressure. And it's like, it almost reads like a really like erudite technical sentence, but then you're missing that article and you're like, wait, what, what just Hmm. happened? And then the next sentence right? I see also is to be mass meeting tonight to organize Sons of Revolution talk talk. And then the language gets real pigeony real quick. And I just think that that's pretty cool. I liked it. And I find I, I got used to it pretty easily. He does. I was sort of trying to pay attention. He tends to temper it, you know, at key narrative points. So it's not intrusive. But he also tends to bring it back at key emotional points when he wants you to remember that like Manny is a human. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's pretty cool. So go Highland on guess- being a stylist.
0: Hmm. I guess I did, Robbie. I want to ask you about this. So um, I, I think that this seems to be sort of the key expression of Prof's political philosophy, which I don't know if this is Heinlein's political philosophy as well. but But he says – he describes himself as a, quote, rational anarchist. And he says, a rational anarchist believes that concepts such as state and society and government have no existence – if as physically exemplified in the acts of self-responsible individuals. He believes that it is impossible to shift blame, share blame, distribute blame, as blame, guilt, responsibility, or matters taking place inside human beings singly and nowhere else. I was just curious, is that a, a strain of libertarian thought that you have encountered, or do you have any thoughts on um, that?
2: I, I'm not sure if that's exactly how a rationalist anarchist would describe themselves. There are a couple... Moments in the book where where if you're the most doctrinaire and like you know student of libertarian philosophy, you would notice that this is maybe not actually something that someone associated with. Oh, the reference Malthus. Uh, the the prof says good things about Malthus, which I, I which is like the one of the overpopulation people, which would, tends to not be a libertarian concern actually, because the more people there are, the more. Actually, people will produce better and resources and be able to feed more people and more efficiently work out market processes and everything actually gets better because people are a more important, most important resource of all. Uh, there's a couple things like that that, and I, I can't think of the others, uh, that stick out as like, well, that's not, well, he, clearly his libertarian ideas aren't, he, he hasn't been to every conference. He not <laughs> exactly foreign. but they're, but they're, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty 95% uh, a, a kind of representation of uh both both just a general you know again even in the American revolutionary sort of classical liberal libertarian sense and uh, and an introduction to the harder stuff of right the prof believes that ideally there should be no government, and everything should be based on just like voluntary agreement and tort-based traditions or something like that, which is what you, right, which is what you get from the most like, market anarchist or rational anarchist um, type perspective. So it is, it's, yeah, it, he, he, he's not just like passingly familiar with it. He's he's extremely familiar with it.
0: Yeah, I, I, one of these videos I watched, it made the point, I think, that this book was published like three years before the Libertarian Party was founded or something like that. So... You know, this is all pretty new. Like, or these ideas, at least, were were not probably that widely, uh, you know, disseminated at the time that Heinlein was.
2: And I just, I looked up that, that neighbor, you said, of his, um, who I thought I had heard of, uh, who, who you, you think, and, and yes, some people think the professor is based on, apparently as a colleague of mine at Reason Magazine, who wrote in, a, in his book <laughs> about... I think the Ron Paul movement or something is the one who made that claim. (laughs) Brian Doherty, colleague of mine.
0: (laughs) He's the one who speculated that this Robert Lafayev guy was, was the inspiration for Prague. And
2: and Brian is the most like studious reporter there is. So it is absolutely true if he's the one who (laughs) wants that that idea.
0: All right, cool. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. So I think we need to start wrapping this up. Uh, But so, uh, so Anthony, you want to give us some final thoughts on, this experience of reading Moon is the Moon is the Harsh
1: Mistress. Um, yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed it. It again is sort of the only one of the later Heinlein's that I particularly like, but I, I definitely recommend it. Even though I would probably say start with with some of his earlier works, like the the young adult novels or the or Double Star, um, and that I also just think that reading Heinlein now in twenty twenty two is really. Can, can be really fun and productive because it's not – we're not at this point where he's so dominant and and so – like so like the, people talk about the Church of Heinlein, but now he feels like a figure that you can like criticize and resist and wrestle with and, and that's part of the fun of reading The Moon is a Harsh Mistress.
0: Yeah, I feel like for, for how dominant Heinlein was in the, you know, sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, etc., that like I don't think – unless you're a science fiction fan these days – People know his name, really. I mean, like, you know, if I if I were to talk to someone who doesn't who isn't a science fiction fan, I say, you know, they would hurt he- they would have at least heard of probably like Asimov and Bradbury and Clark and but 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 maybe not Heinlein. And when I when I did research, you know, like it was striking on YouTube, there wasn't a ton of stuff about there wasn't a ton of discussion of um Moon is a harsh mistress. I mean there were tons of videos about Stranger in a Strange Land, but it does seem like Heinlein's um you know, footprint is sort of shrinking to to maybe just just that, and 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 maybe a few other things. But um, I don't know, Lisa. What do you what do you think about that?
3: Oh yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about um, I'm thinking about like my colleagues at Georgia Tech, my scientists and engineering colleagues, and and many of them are pretty well read and know quite a bit of older science fiction. And it's interesting. You're right. Like. They'll often cite like Arthur C. Clarke or Isaac Asimov or or Star Trek, even. But Robert Heinlein is not a name that comes up a lot uh, in terms of, and maybe just especially the later stuff, it sort of falls between science and politics. And, you know, no one ever likes to claim like the thing that's at the crossroads, right? It's sort of the bastard child of everything else. (laughs) Um, But, you know, what do I say about this book? I don't know. I laughed. I cried. Hmm. I got super annoyed, (laughs) walked away from it for three weeks. Picked it back up, threw it against the wall, <laughs> finished it, and uh then had a really, you know, rousing set of conversations with a variety of people about it. So I, I'd have to say that it does what I think science fiction is supposed to do, which is it, it gets you really intellectually engaged and on a whole bunch of issues and, and it kind of it builds community because you want to talk about it with people. So much as I do not want to live in that particular future, I, I think it's totally worth reading and, and thinking about. Yeah. About Robbie, final thoughts.
2: Yeah, I I mean I feel if you described it, you know, accurately as an instruction manual for how to like build a catapult crossed with a libertarian manifesto sales pitch <laughs> that would like alienate everyone, <laughs> but the but the, the book is really good despite very much being about those two exact things. Uh it's a it's 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 a very fair kind of introduction to our philosophy and uh with with you know some really juicy uh, sci-fi stuff, and uh, and Mike is is spectacular, and has, an, has a really affecting ending. So it was it was super enjoyable uh, to read it uh, to, to write, revisit it. I definitely had not given it enough appreciation, I, I I think, because I actually read it or attempted to read it before even my ideas, which are kind of in line with the book, were formed. So it's been a it's been a pleasure to revisit it now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely glad that I finally read it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the book that's really, really great that we've talked about. You know, like Mike is amazing. I, I think the, you know, this uh, hypothetical culture on the, or society on the moon is really, really fascinating. Um, the, all the stuff about, you know, lobbing rocks at Earth. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in the book. Again, like huge disclaimer around the gender stuff. It's, it will definitely uh, make you cringe. Um, but uh, I think there's enough that the book does really, really well, that, um, it's definitely worth, uh, worth a look. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my final verdict there. And it did make me want to read more Heinlein. I mean, like, you know, ha- seeing all the, um, discussion around Stranger in a Strange Land, I was kind of like, oh, maybe I, maybe I should read that. Um, but, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll do that for a future book club. Uh, but we are all out of time. So why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha. Lisa Yazik, and Robbie Suave. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you.
3: Yeah, thanks for having us on.
0: Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Lisa Yazik, and Robbie Suave for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy
2: is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If
1: you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.